Amen. Before we get into the Word, we are having the privilege of dedicating a beautiful little girl, Chloe Lynn Duncan, to the Lord. And so if her parents will bring Chloe out, we will dedicate her to the Lord. And I didn't have much luck getting her to hold, for me to hold her backstage, so we'll see. We'll see what cookies will do. Chloe, you want to come here? You want to come here? You ate my cookies. At least make me look like a good... You don't like... What's that? Yeah, I know. She is one strong-willed little girl, too. God has good things for you, Chloe. (laughs) Lord, thank you so much for this precious little girl. So cute, so smart, just aware, talking a lot, and, and dancing as we worshiped you. And God, what a beautiful gift she is to the Duncans family. And Lord, I thank you that she's going to be raised knowing all about loving you and you loving her, that their home is a place whereby you are at the center. And so, Lord, just please bless this little girl, fulfill all of the potential that she has, the plans that you have for her, bring them to pass, and help her big brother and her parents to just always make her feel secure in your love for her and your centrality in their lives. And so, Lord, we just offer her up to you, acknowledging that she comes from you. She belongs to you. She's your little girl. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You're such a good girl, Chloe. (laughs) I think she wants to stay with me. (laughs) God bless you guys. Bye, hon. See you, buddy. Give me five. (laughs) <laughs> All right. Now on to less important things. <laughs> Let's turn in our Bibles to, not really, First John chapter 4. As we're going through this book of First John and we have seen, well, in this, in this book you find out why John is called the apostle of love because he talks about love a lot. It seems to be the main thing that he really cares about. And here in chapter 4, beginning with verse 7, we come to kind of the center of that whole discussion and everything that he has to say, everything that he wants to say about love and, and love's connection to God. In fact, from verse 7 through the end of the chapter, um, verse 21, in those 15 verses, he uses the word love 29 times. And then if you, the discussion continues into the first three verses of chapter 5, and there in three verses he mentions love five more times. And so you get the idea that he wants to talk to us about love and that that is vitally important. But he, in this section, boy, there's a, a lot we learn about love. We learn about why love matters, why it's important. And he gives us some valuable insights into understanding how love works and how it's to be applied in our lives. And one of the things that stands out in the passage to me as I've studied through it, and and I've entitled this message, The Audacity of Love. Audacity is when you exercise courage and bravery almost to the disregard of your own personal safety or security. And and I, and I see that audacious nature of love in that as he, as he talks about love, he pinpoints the fact that 
What makes love love is that love is an initiator. Love isn't just responding to someone else's love in a mutual way. Uh, often we use the term that way. We, there's someone and we're kind of thinking, I think I could love that person if they would love me. And you make little gestures and, it, okay, are we going to come up with some sort of a deal whereby we love each other? And because we don't want to be the one who would love and not have it reciprocated. Thus, love for us so often is an attempt to be loved, and so we love with that as our motivation. Um, what we see here is that God is the one who shows us love, and the way He shows us love is by doing something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves, loving us in a way that it couldn't be anticipated that it would be reciprocated, Loving in a way, really, whereby God, who knows everything, knew that his love would be wasted on most of us, and yet he loves anyway, because what love does is it loves without an expectation of having it be returned. And just some powerful truths in this passage, and it was hard for me to to pull everything in and, and put a handle on it in these verses, but I but the, but the central focus of these verses, I think, um, is that love is something that's initiated by the lover. Love is something that, is, that comes from, not from an expectation of what you'll get, but it's that unconditional extension of care and concern for someone who really doesn't have an easy way of, of paying it back. And he also gives us some insights into why so often we have such a hard time with this. What, what's keeping us from love? And so, in a way, in these verses, um, I've called it the audacity of love, but um, it also could kind of have as a backdrop of it the old 80s power ballad by Foreigner, I want to know what love is. Because every one of us, one time or another, has that feeling. Okay, I know love is important, but what in the world is it? Well, he, he demonstrates that for us. So let's pick up beginning with verse 7, 1 John chapter 4. <clears throat> he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation or the payment for our sins. Now, if you don't go beyond the basic centrality of the truth that's presented here that is said in those three words, God is love, then, boy, you could come to the conclusion that love is just a fringe area. But when we're talking about something, it doesn't say God is loving. It says God is love. The love is the greatest description of the very character and person of God. And as God wants to reveal himself, it's going to be in this area of love. And again, it's God initiating the love. We see here in this picture, um, and you know, first let me say in verse 7 and 8, it says that 
Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God, and he who doesn't love doesn't know God, for God is love. We could spend the whole time discussing what in the world that means, and I don't, I don't profess to completely understand what it means that everyone who loves is born of God, and everyone who doesn't love isn't born of God. Um, and in fact, I made that the first question on the discussion questions for this week for the home fellowships. So I'll let you untangle that. Um, I'll, I, I just say I believe it. it. I have problems with the statement. There are some things that he says later on that maybe help clarify it a bit. But I'm sure you'll figure it out because I can't. But, but here what he is saying is, look, this is love. Love is the central thing that will define who you are. If, if love is a part of your life, that's an indication that your life is beneficial and fruitful. If it isn't, you're sunk. And he says, here's how we know love. God looked down on us and extended his love to us when we were dead. God had nothing to gain in loving us. God had nothing to gain when he looked down at people who had corrupted themselves, corrupted the planet, corrupted relationships. In every way, we're a complete mess. The Bible describes us without God as being dead. And God looks down and he says, I want to do something about that. Knowing that what he was going to do about it would mean that Jesus Christ would have to become a person would have to make that connection with us and ultimately be tortured and died. God did that so that we would have life. Now, please understand this. God had nothing to gain by us going from death to life. When God looks at us in our pathetic state apart from him, we don't have anything to offer. God can make other people better than us. God could do God was fine without us. A lot of times we have the idea that that God like was so lonely. I mean, it's just like I'm so sick of just talking to the Son and the Spirit. I need other people. I need millions of people who will ignore me for eternity. That's not that wasn't God's thing at all. He was moved simply by love for us. And love is the is the closest thing to how you could even describe who God is. And being unloving is the furthest thing that you can get away from God. But what we see here is that he looked at us, we were dead, and he said, I want you to be alive. And because I want you to have life, I am willing to come, become a man, humble myself to the death of the cross so that you have a shot at life. And when he loves us that way, he knows that it's not going to work for most of the people for whom he died. And yet the heart of God resoundingly will always be what, what John shared in John chapter 3, one of the first stories that John told after chapter 1 where he explains that here the word Jesus was God and he became a man, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then you come to John chapter 3, and Jesus is having a nighttime meeting with Nicodemus, who was a political religious leader, and he's asking him questions, and Jesus' explanation 
of here's what God is about, here's the real point of all of life and of existence and why you're born, he said that verse that many of you memorized when you were little children, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish, but would have everlasting life. And then he says, and God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's the central message that God is trying to communicate. You're dead. I can give you life. I love you. And I'm not asking anything from you. This is what separates biblical Christianity from every other religion, is that in almost every religion, people are trying to get God's attention. And often in various phases of, and expressions of Christianity, this is the case. Okay, we need to do something really significant so God will see us. We need to build a real fancy building so God might show up. We need to worship really good because if we worship, sometimes God mysteriously appears. And we're trying to get God's attention. And so various civilizations would throw people into a volcano to hope that God is impressed. Or they would torture themselves, or they would live lives of misery. They would deny themselves every kind of pleasure imaginable so that somehow we might make God care about us. But Christianity is that radical expression of love whereby he wasn't wanting anything from us. He wasn't even trying to get us to love him back. He was simply wanting to love us because that's who he is. That's his nature. And when he expresses himself, it's expressed like that unconditional love. And so, as he says, in this, the love of God was manifested toward us. God sent his only begotten son into the world that we could live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. It's all in the initiation of love. And he says, and then he goes on now and in the next few verses, after he's established, okay, here's what love looks like. It is a selfless, initiated act for the benefit of someone else without an expectation of it being reciprocated or returned. That's love and that's God. And you better think it's important because it is God and God matters, I mean, you wouldn't be here and we wouldn't be reading this book if God doesn't matter. And he, John's just saying, God is love. And here's what love looks like. Now, in this next section, beginning with verse 11, he personalizes it and applies it to us. He lets us know what this has to do with us. What does this look like in a human life and why does it matter? If you don't have to respond, if you don't have to love him back, then what is this about? And in verse 11, he says, Beloved, those who are loved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, already that's a little strange because you would expect him to say, because this is what we're used to, if God so loved us, then we ought to love God. But that's not where he goes right here. That's not his central point. The reason that we expect it to say that is because that's the way we do it. It's like, okay, I'm going to, and we all know that love is taking a risk, it's taking a chance, but I'm going to try it 
little bit, and I'm going to see what comes back. I'm going to dangle a few hooks of love in the water and see if I get a bite. And so love for us looks kind of like buying a gift for someone else and expecting them to give you a gift back. And if I buy a gift for someone else and they don't give me a gift back, then that's it. I'm not buying them a gift again because it's too awkward. I kind of wonder, why don't you just buy yourself a gift? At least you'll get what you want. You don't have to go return it. But we almost pretend like, oh, and especially what really makes you feel bad is when somebody gives you a gift and you didn't plan on giving them a gift. And so you have to like find something to give them really quick and pretend like, oh yeah, you know, that's, I, I was, I've been meaning to give this to you. Because for us, love is so often just a deal. But the truth is, Love is about God loving us and then saying, if this touches you, then will you go love somebody else? Why is that? Because to love God back is not love at its essence. To love at its essence is to love someone who hasn't been loving to you, is to initiate love, is to reach out to someone who can't possibly pay you back because that's the kind of love with which he loved us. And so he says, look, don't just come back and thank me for what I have done for you. If this touches you, do what I've done. Go to people who need love and, and love them when, when you don't anticipate a logical uh, level of, of reciprocation from it. He says in verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. You have to factor that verse in with verses 7 and 8 to begin to make sense of it. But we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Verse 12 is really heavy to me. Because what it says is, nobody has seen God because God's the Spirit. But the closest you will ever get to seeing God is by seeing people who love you. Is, and so what he's communicating is, hey, if the big need of people in this world is to see God and know God and to know that he loves them, the only way that's going to happen is if they see it through us. Now, on the one hand, that's sort of scary. If I think, man, the closest anybody's ever going to see to God is if they see me, oh boy, that talk about putting the pressure on. But at the same time, what a powerful truth to know that it's possible for someone to see me and to see God. No greater privilege in life than for someone to look at how we love them and say, so that's what God looks like. And here, through these verses, as he develops this a little bit more, he's saying there's this amazing connection with God that happens when we do this. Because he abides in us. And he says, God gave us his spirit. God gave us the Holy Spirit in the same way that he gave us Jesus. He gave us Jesus to give us life. He gives us the spirit to live in us 
to help us to have the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. And so he says that happens, and God abides in us, and we abide in God, because when we love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are involved in this whole process. And that's how people can begin to see God through us and in us, is because as we love, as we do what love is, which is what God is, as we take the initiative, as we have the audacity to to put our love out there in a way that could be at risk to us. But when people see that happening, most of them are going to miss it. Most people are not going to see God in us. But as we love like he does, some people will. And in the same way that God sent his son because he loved the world, and he knew that most people would reject it, He saw the people who would accept it, and he said, they are worth it. And so at the same time with our lives, we have to come to that point where we realize, I'm going to show my love to people, even though most of them are going to reject it. And love can go really bad, let's face it. It is a risky thing. But those who end up responding by loving God and knowing him and then wanting to show his love to other people that's worth it. And that's what it's about. And when we love, we connect to God with an intimacy that we can't connect in any other way. We can sit and sing love songs to God, and that's a beautiful thing, and God wants us to do that. But he really doesn't need that. He doesn't hear it and go, okay, you're a little flat, and this could be sped up. He's not a judge on American Idol. But what, God, what blesses God's heart is when he sees us loving other people because we say, somebody loved me, and when I saw them, I saw God. And that drew me closer to God. And, and as a result, I just want to be Jesus to other people. I just want to show with my life that you can be loved when somebody's not trying to hustle you, when someone's not trying to get anything out of you. Attractive people generally feel loved a lot. Unattractive people, not so much. But God's the kind of God who loves us when we are unattractive, when we are at our worst, and that has a, a way in which we can connect to him. Even when our love is, is spit upon and rejected, we find ourselves being drawn closer to God because if I reach out and love someone and, and they abuse that or they take advantage of me or they reject that love, then I can look at Jesus and I can go, I guess I understand a little bit of how I've made you feel at times. I guess I understand when when I am being rejected or unappreciated by others, I get what it's like for you to give your life for people who don't even make the time to talk to you and who do things deliberately that they know you don't want them to do, wow, I, I get that. I understand what that means. And so he's saying here, first of all, God is love. And here's what love is. It's this initiated, audacious expression with no expectation of return. In fact, a, a, a willing awareness that a lot of times you're going to get stepped on when you love. But he says what that does is it shows people God. 
And when you show people God, you'll feel yourself in a communion and a harmony with him that's incredibly rewarding. Um, it feels really good to be loved, doesn't it? I mean, when you know that someone cares about you and they're not trying to get anything from you, that's, that's a real blessing. But the only greater blessing than that, as the old expression says, it's more blessed to give than to receive, is that feeling of loving someone else, of caring about them. And, and, and you know how that works because when God gives you a love for somebody, whether it's for a child, whether it's for you know, somebody who's a stranger, for it's people over in a nation that you've never even visited before where it's like, wow, I love these people so much. That feels so good, and that good feeling of love, whether it's coming in or going out either way, is the feeling of being close to God. That's what heaven feels like. That's what it's going to feel like to be close to Him forever. It's just going to be the best feeling that you ever had of loving someone and being loved and being secure in that. That's what the atmosphere of heaven is because God is love. And so John's saying, Yeah, God is love, and this is about Him, but it's also about you, because He wants to work that into your life, and He wants you to be close to Him. And again, that the highest privilege ever for somebody to look at you and see Jesus, for somebody to look at you and go, when I see how you love me, I get that God does, and I see Him. And that's the only God that we'll see, according to what this says Now he goes on in verse 17 and kind of gets to what I think is the heart of the passage because it pinpoints where love goes wrong. And he says in verse 17, love has been perfected or completed, matured among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear Because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. First of all, in verse 17, it says, Love is perfected in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. That word boldness could be translated audacity. That we are able to extend ourselves in the day of judgment. Now, most commentators take this day of judgment as referring to either the Bema Seat Judgment or even the Great White Throne, some future day whereby everyone is is judged. I'm not sure that that's the correct um, interpretation of it because of the context. And this phrase, the day of judgment written the way it is, this is the only place in the New Testament where it's expressed this way in the Greek, where it's the day of the judgment, definite articles with both of them. The, the Greek word for judgment is the word crisis. Um, we use the word all the time, transliterated. The word at its essence means a decision. And so you could translate this in the time, in the day of the decision. Then the, and if you, if you look at it that way, it, it applies either way, but love being perfected takes you to that day, either of judgment, if you want to take that uh, translation and and go with that, that's fine. But the way I see it, I think he's referring to more than that because it doesn't make that much sense 
I mean, if that's the case, then what he's saying is, if you love, then you know you don't have to face judgment because, um, you know, you're saved because you have love. And that's okay, and that's, a, that's certainly true. But what I see here in the context and looking at these um, two verses together is that he's talking about times when decisions have to be made. He's talking about those life-defining moments whereby we find out what we're made of. Now, facing God is certainly one of those moments. But I think it happens a lot more than sometimes we might think of. And the reason I understand it that way is because of what he says in the same sentence as he flows through here and says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. That doesn't mean that, that if you love somebody, you won't be afraid Fear is something that everyone has. But what perfect love does, mature love, casts out fear. They take fear, and literally what the word means is throw it out the door. Perfect love says, I might be afraid, but I am not going to live by that fear. And every day we are in moments of crisis. Every day we are making decisions about how we are to treat someone else, what we are to do, what direction our life is taking. And in all of those situations, we have a choice. Do I make decisions based on fear or do I make decisions based on love? And the two are generally mutually exclusive. And that's why he says, you can't live in fear and live in love, which is kind of the point of it. And for Jesus, he came to his moment of crisis as he was in the garden And I guarantee you he was not feeling ecstatic as he had been laboring in prayer, sweating drops of blood, as he then was ridiculed and spit upon and insulted and stripped bare and nailed to a cross. And and even as he cried out to the Father, are you sure there's not some other way? If there's any other way, please deliver me, but not my will, but yours be done. In that moment of decision, when he decided, not my will but thine be done, what he was saying was, hey, I am going to face the blackest day of my life where I feel separation from the Father for the first time in all of eternity, but I'm going to take that fear and I'm going to toss it out the door and I'm going to do what needs to be done. Why? Because I love these people. Because I'm their only hope. Because I can make a difference in their lives. And, and it's that that I think John is really driving at. And I think for many of us, this element of fear and how it interacts with love is central to us understanding not only what love is, but what it is that robs us from that love. The Bible has a lot to say about fear. And more often than not, it's God saying, fear not. But to say fear not, if you, if you look at it, it's, it's an acknowledgement that you are afraid. But the real thing isn't whether you're afraid or not. The real thing is whether fear is going to determine the decisions that you make. And if love is an initiatory act, if love is to be audacious, then love needs to say, I am going to take this chance and I am going to love regardless of how that love is returned or not. And even though I'm afraid it's not going to be, 
and I even know that it's not going to be often, I'm still going to choose to do this because that's what love does. Love says, I'm afraid, but I'm tossing that out because I'm going to do what I need to do. And you'll never love anyone until you can get over living by fear. It's one of my pet peeves. I believe that so much in our society is designed toward, built around fear, really. So many of our motivations, so many of the laws that we pass are because we're afraid something bad's going to happen. But all of those laws can't keep us safe. Life isn't safe. I, I so miss the days when kids, you could throw 15 kids in the back of a pickup and drive around with them in there. And you screech around corners because then they would roll and crash into each other, and it was cool. Today, you can't even put your dog in the back of your pickup without chaining them down. Now, I understand that in that old system, there was probably a kid somewhere that went flying out of a truck and got hurt. But what do we give up by living our life full of paranoia, full of constant obsession with whether or not we're safe? And do we really keep ourselves safer in the process? A lot of times, you know, people will talk to me about, you know, aren't you afraid of getting up in front of people? And sometimes I'll go, no, not really. But no, the truth is, almost every time I step up here, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what people will think of me. I'm afraid I'll forget what I'm going to say. I'm afraid that I'll remember what I'm going to say, and it's something <laughs> that I shouldn't say. Um, but at some point, you just have to decide, you know what, this is what I'm called to do, so I'm going to do it. And I don't think I'll ever get over the fear, so I'm just going to do it anyway. But what our society has done is we have raised a generation that's afraid of everything. And, and, it, and I think it's, it's really sad. Because if learning to love means throwing fear out the window, what we are doing is we have made the greatest good avoidance of any potential risk. And therefore, it's no wonder that love is falling by the wayside. Because people, I mean, kids aren't naturally afraid. Kids aren't born with an instinctual sense of, you know, oh, I can't do that or that would be dangerous. They're not scared at all. And there are some good things about that. You know, I, a couple weeks ago, we had um, Mackenzie and Isaiah McRae over to our house. They're kind of our adopted grandkids until our kids get their act together. And, <laughs> but I was playing in the jacuzzi with them, and I'm kind of watching both kids. And I had a, Isaiah's two years old, so he's not a swimmer at this point. But I had a little foam pad, and I was pulling him around, and I'm playing with Mackenzie. And, and I turned my back on Isaiah. This happened several times. I turn my back, and I look back, and he's underwater, just like, you know, he thinks he's swimming, you know, so I pull him up, and he's coughing water, but I act like nothing's wrong. Inside, I'm dying, but I'm acting like everything's fine, and he's like, do it again, do it again. <laughs> he, he doesn't have that natural sense of fear, and Isaiah, every week when I see him, he comes up to me, he calls me Pad Dave, because he's trying to say Pastor Dave, but he's efficient, and he goes... He goes, Pad Dave, I come to your house and ride your motorcycle. And I go, yeah, yeah, we'll do that someday when your parents are out of town. And, <laughs> and, he, goes, and he goes, and we go fast, huh? We go fast. I go, yeah. And I think, I know some people who are like so old that their life is almost worthless. And they're still, a f sorry, they're as old as I am. 
And they're still scared to death. Oh, I wouldn't ride a motorcycle. I'm not saying you have to ride a motorcycle, but I'm saying something happened between a little kid who wants to ride fast and adults who think that that's too dangerous. Every time I get on my motorcycle, I'm afraid. I went on a great ride yesterday. Yeah, I get scared the whole time. You know, not the whole time I'm riding, but at times things happen. But I've just decided that I would rather be in danger and, and go down Coast Highway and smell the sea air and watch the sun glistening off the water and feel that breeze in my face and, and that thrill of having someone cutting you off and you have to make a move in order to avoid them. <laughs> I would rather live like that with the risks that it entails rather than to make my life me flopped on a sofa watching Glee or Dancing with the Stars <laughs> and just going, yeah, I feel perfectly safe here. I'm more afraid of that life than I am of riding a motorcycle. So I take certain risks in order to do that as life. And, and, but, but our society, we're seat belting everyone, we're strapping everyone in, we're stopping. You know, think about when you were a little kid, if you can remember back that far, how good it felt to run barefoot. To, to be on a gr big grassy field, there are these things that we used to have, and just to run in your bare feet. Or to be at the beach and be in the sand and walk across the sand and feel it between your toes and the coolness of it and the freshness and to just run in that sand. Remember what that felt like? Well, kids, that's what they naturally do. No kid is born and go, can you put something on my feet? And, and yet what we have is we've got all these little kids trying to run in those stupid Crocs or, or you know, <laughs> reef sandals or, you know, and it's like, what happened? I mean, we're cutting big chunks of life out to try to be safe. And so often it's that paranoia that causes us to not love because loving someone, reaching out to them is taking a risk. You know it is, and it may not work out so well, and, it, it, and there's a cost involved for sure, but, but what perfect love does is says, you know, I want to love so much that if it comes back in my face, that's okay. If I'm taking a risk and it, it injures me or someone else, I get sued, that's okay. Loving is who I am. Because loving is my one chance at having people see God in me. So I'm going to do this. People are so afraid of that. I, there are some people, it's funny, I like watching how people hug you. Because, you know, around Christians and stuff, just like around relatives, it's, you know, you're kind of sometimes expected. Some people are huggers, some people aren't, and it gets kind of awkward. But there are some people that hug me. There are some relatives I have, actually, who, who hug me. Um, and it's like, they obviously don't want to. They're, you know how people hug you like from as far away as they can possibly get from you and they kind of reach out and they sort of like have an imitation hug kind of and, and that hug doesn't say I love you. That hug says I think you might have a communicable disease. <laughs> and sometimes I just feel like going, you know what? <laughs> don't hug me, okay? You don't have to. You don't have to like put on your rubber gloves. If you, don't, you don't even have to shake my hand. I don't care. If I get a hug, I want it to be a real hug. And, and so often, that's what hampers our love. And you know where it starts? People are actually even afraid to let someone love them. People are afraid to let God love them because they're afraid of what it's going to involve. They're afraid it'll get too complicated. Like, 
if he loves me, then I, gotta do, I have to go be a missionary to Africa or something. No, you don't. If he loves you, you just need to let him love you. That's all. He's not trying to hustle you. He's not trying to work you. He just loves. That's it. That's who he is. That's his very nature. And, you know, sometimes you thought somebody loved you and they didn't. And they burned you and cut you bad. And, and so you decide, you know, that's it, man. That's the last time I'm letting anyone love me. If you don't let people love you, you'll have a hard time ever loving anyone else. And you'll be trading away what you were created to be. The ability, the potential of having Jesus show up in you, that fellowship that you have with him, if you can't get over your fear, then you certainly will miss the point of why you were created. And so John is just passionate about this, just going, no, you know, what fear does, it involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect, mature in love. This is so critical for for us, I believe, to be willing to do something you're afraid of, to be willing to reach out when you know that it could cost you, and to open your heart up and allow someone else to love you. That's so rare, but so important, so critical. It's at the center of what love is about. And then finally, he kind of wraps it up by going over these principles again. He says in verse um, 17, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we. And then he talks about it, casting out fear. And then finally in verse 19, he says, we love him because he first loved us. And there are some manuscripts that him is not in there. I don't, I haven't seen the original manuscript, so I'm not sure if it is or not. So it either means that we love him because he loves us or because he loves us, we are able to love in general. Both are true because he says, if you love me, love my people. So either way, he says, this is how it happens. And then he says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Either you're lying about loving God or you're lying about saying that you hate your brother. Um, For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Again, it comes back to visibility. The only way you can see God is in people who love you. And so if you can't handle people who you see, you're pretending if you tell yourself that you love a God spirit out there somewhere, a big dodger in the sky who you can't even see. See, it's fairly easy to love somebody who you can't see. You can love someone who's imaginary. But loving someone that you can see, that's what's tough. And he goes, you can't, if you can't handle people, you can't handle God. It's harder to love him than it is to even love people. People blame God for all kinds of stuff. And then finally, in this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. So here's what God says. If you get my love, you'll be a loving person. If you refuse to reach out to others and take the risk of caring about others and loving them, then God would say, you don't get me at all. There's something that you've missed. Somehow you found out, you learned wrongfully that love is about making a deal with somebody where you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. 
He goes, no. I've loved you freely. I had nothing to gain. When you start seeing that, you'll realize the incredible privilege it is to love someone who can't help you, to love someone who you have no expectation of them returning that or doing you a favor. It's just that you want to, in gratitude, imitate your Father who loves you, the Spirit who's inside of you, the Son who gave His life for you. Let's pray. Thanks for loving us, God. Such a powerful truth when we even begin to comprehend it. And Lord, I thank you for the people who have loved us with your love because we would have never seen you had not someone who didn't have to reach out and love us with your unconditional love. Thank you for those people. Help us to be those people for others. Help us to exemplify, to live out in an audacious way, in a bold and risky way, to love. To be able to say that we love, to not apologize for love, but to freely love the way you have freely loved us. So Lord, we thank you for your love. Help us to make it more and more part of our expressions and the way we live. In Jesus' name, amen.